Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Eric Clark of the Mega Brands Podcast. It is April 27th after the market closed. We have some big earnings reports coming in Starbucks, Visa, Google, Microsoft, Pinterest. Looking forward to hearing those names. Really excited for today's conversation with Barry Schwartz from Baskins Wealth Management. They're about a $2 billion asset manager based out of Toronto. They serve high net worth individuals and foundations. I have had some great Twitter conversations with Barry, but uh, looking forward to having the one-on-one call to talk about Baskin's, Barry's portfolio management style and strategy. We have some similarities across how they allocate as well as how we do it for the dynamic brand strategy. So it's going to be a fun conversation. Hey, Barry, welcome to Mega Brands. Thank you for having me. It's funny. We were just uh, we were just looking at some after hours. I mean, we we got quite an earnings bonanza. Google. I didn't read any of the print. I'm just looking at my after hours chart deck here, and Google looks like it's gone straight vertical, and Microsoft looks like it's gone right down to the floor. So, I, any views on any of that stuff, or is it too early to look through the numbers? <laughs> yeah, it's so early to to look through. So much expectation for Microsoft, given I. Is it a $2 trillion company now? It's just shocking how well that stock has done. I remember last year it was 140 bucks, and I was humming and hawing whether I should buy it there. Is that a good value? It's COVID. Who knows what's going to happen? And now, of course, the stock's 250 260 So I think we were saying like every pullback on these great quality names has been a buying opportunity for the last 10, 12 years. So I guess you kind of hope if you're getting new clients like we are, we hope for some pullbacks in some of these names. I mean, I I love it. My buddies call me the knife catcher, but I'm happy to buy something that's going down when you feel really confident about it and it's high quality business. You should want for some short-term sales, you know, to be able to get back in and add to your position. But people, you know, all the technical guys out there, oh my God, the chart looks dreadful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess the feeling is when stocks go up, it makes you feel like a genius. It feels so good, the beautiful chart, your clients love you. And then what we do, because we manage separate accounts, our clients can see everything they own in real time. They can log in. And I think their eyes always go right towards the name that's done nothing or it's an underperformer or it's down on book value. And some of the times I say to them, we just bought it like a week ago. (laughs) It's not an underperformer. Give us some time. So Microsoft is a name, Eric, that our clients have owned since 2010. So we have a long experience with Microsoft and we started buying it as an income play. I don't know if you remember in in 2010, it had a big fat dividend and everybody said it's, you know, this is just a boring utility company. Sure. Everybody uses Microsoft Excel and Word and all that stuff, but 
yeah, there's no growth. I think at one point, Microsoft even had a down year on revenue. And so you really couldn't know at all what was going to happen 10, 12 years from now when you're buying Microsoft in 2010. You're just buying it because the fundamentals are cheap and the dividend looked good. I'm not so sure that the berry of uh, 2021 would be buying a Microsoft today uh, based on those fundamentals, right? It's I look at different things. So it's so interesting to me when you look back at some of the decisions that you made a long time ago. And I guess 99% of it, it's luck and patience. That is, that is. I mean, what's your view of their some of their acquisitions lately? I mean, they seem to have an interest in social for sure with potential of, you know, they were talking about TikTok and they were, you know, I mean, they, they obviously did LinkedIn, which I guess it seems like that's been a pretty good acquisition for them. But I mean, what's your view on their acquisition strategy? Well, I guess you have to look at the balance sheet, for example, they're generating so much cash and money so cheap and really to buy back and keep buying back stock here for no reason. And for them to pay 30, 35 times earnings, seems like it's probably a best use of the cash to look and continue to grow the business. And let's face it, Microsoft doesn't have that many reinvestment opportunities. So when something comes up that I think that they can add on, and no question, everybody wants to get into social media. And I guess Microsoft is kind of going unscathed here because it's one of the few big tech companies that is not under regulatory scrutiny for whatever reason. So they can be the buyer of choice. You know, this is a company where there's so much going on that as a generalist, there's no way I could tell you if all these moves are right moves or wrong moves. I, I think you really have to trust the quality of management, some of those intangible things. For me as an investor, I try to think pretty much about three things that get me excited about a company. And I leave the uh, the day-to-day worries about the small nuanced things to my analyst, Ernest, who does worry about those things. And I think that us as a team kind of play off each other and keep both of us grounded. He thinks I'm too optimistic and flushes off some of these small things. And I think he's too nitpicky about some of these things that probably are not important. So you have the luxury of sleeping at night because you have a much longer time horizon. And he's worried about the squiggles, which probably keep him up (laughs) at night. I think so. I I think as a younger investor and as an analyst, those are the nuances that you're focused on for sure. Ultimately, we're long-term investors here. If you can take a look at my 13F and see what I've talked about on Twitter before, you know, we really want to be business owners. Everybody talks about being a business owner. So few can do it. I've made every single mistake in the book 10 times over, but Really, when I think long-term and act long-term and pretend that I'm the owner of Microsoft, then I I think I become a a much better investor and my clients benefit as a result. Yeah. Well, we we met on Twitter. I don't own Twitter stock because I can't still can't figure out how they might monetize and create a real business out of it. But I love the fact that you have so much access to great information. You obviously have to sift through the information to know what's, you know, somebody talking their book and trying to give you a bias versus just really good information. But, you know, I've connected with so many smart people and portfolio managers. Frankly, I think it's even, I've connected more through Twitter than I have through LinkedIn or any other medium. So, you know, I've enjoyed your posts over time and it was fun to kind of reach out and, and talk a little bit about pre the podcast, just about kind of your business and and my focus on the global consumer and then looking into your portfolio. I mean, we definitely have some similarities on certain names. Maybe the first place to start is just, you know, tell us a little bit about Baskins, just, you know, about $2 billion in assets. I was on your website and I kind of looked at your, you know, the five principles, if you will, of the kind of stocks that you tend to look at. So it seems, correct me if I'm wrong, that you guys run a core equity portfolio. So it's not like a traditional, you know, a client goes to a financial advisor and they build them this, what I call the yawn portfolio, that's got 15 different asset classes and 5,000 different securities and, you know, kind of the ride through every storm type of portfolio. You guys do something very specific and that's all you need. And I, I think anyway, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel the same way. I, I don't even need to own 100 stocks, but I certainly don't need to own 5,000 securities in a diversified portfolio. So tell us a little bit about what you do there at Baskins. Yeah. So th- thank you for that. We, we run separate 
accounts for our clients. It's a boutique style approach managing for a select number of, of clients. They have to meet a certain minimum and they have to have a like-minded point of view. The worst thing, as you can understand in any investment business, is to get clients and have expectations that you cannot fulfill. And as well, selling, having clients that are looking for a specific type of investment that you're not comfortable doing. So, you know, we're very lucky and blessed that we have clients that allow us the ability to help them out and do what we got to do for them and trust our style and our approach and believe in it. But uh, it's separate managed accounts and each client owns a um, a managed portfolio, so to speak, of a number of securities up to about 30 equities in North America. We're Canadian based, obviously, and then some fixed income layered on top of it. And we have a view and we have an approach that we take. And you're absolutely right. This is not the uh, what you call the Chinese menu of uh, investing here. We don't have 80 different options for clients. Uh, and nor do I think that's the right approach. We think we're pretty good at investing in high quality businesses. And we think that's really all you need. And on the fixed income side for our clients, we view fixed income as the safety blanket. We view it as when we're buying them fixed income that they don't want to lose money. So we try very hard to stick to the highest quality, not take on a lot of risk, not do silly things. To me, the stock market is one of the greatest inventions ever. And the underrated characteristic that I love about it is liquidity and transparency. I guess we can quibble about the transparency part, but the liquidity part is very important. And the fact that our clients, if they needed their money back tomorrow, could call me up and liquidate that's very important to me. And I think that gives them comfort, especially as we saw during in 2020, how volatile markets are and people locked into these products and funds where they can't get out 30, 60, 90 days, God knows what, and being gated. So for us, that's our style and our approach. Typically, we deal with a family that has about a million dollars that's looking to invest and grow their wealth. And we do financial planning and really try to understand our clients. And within that, Uh, We will sit down with a client and and do all the uh, know your client type review to make sure that we're setting up a portfolio that suits their needs and their goals and their objectives, but within what we want to invest in. And, you know, through the years, we've learned that buying the best businesses, not overpaying, uh, not trading too much, not doing things when the market is going down, not having to have an action plan every day. That suits our style. It suits the clients that we want to work with. You know, the, the results have, have spoken for themselves. So we're very happy with the plan, but always evolving. And so I think like any investor, you start out the Warren Buffett, Ben Graham's style, then you figure out, holy smokes, I don't, I, I'm not good at this. And you eventually gravitate to owning better quality businesses. So many of those businesses you can see on your website, just tremendous quality. And as Canadian investors, just to finish off here, there's not that many to invest in in Canada. Everybody knows uh, Constellation Software. And after that, there's only a handful of really Canadian-based businesses that you can buy that are of the highest quality. We're really lacking here in Canada. It's commodity-based. There's a lot of banks, utilities, pipelines, telcos. Our Canadian investors love dividends and everybody loves dividends, but you know, buying a dividend is not an investment thesis. It's buying, at least for us, we want to buy the best businesses and it happens to pay a dividend and grows that dividend. Terrific. So we've gravitated and over the years of, of certainly own, we own a lot and our clients own a lot more U.S. companies than ever before. Right. You know, it's, it's funny that, uh, you know, and I don't know if it's the same in Canada at the wealth management from that perspective, but you know, I almost think, you know, I don't want to bash, a, you know, a, a firm named Morningstar, but I'll use that mechanism as an example. You know, when I got into the industry, I worked for an institutional value shop and most of our clients, sounds like like you guys, most of them, we managed all their money. It was a core equity strategy that was kind of all cap and global. And then we managed some bonds around there. And that's all that people needed. Mm-hmm. And, for, and that made sense to me. As a, as a younger guy. And fast forward into today's world, you know, if you talk to an advisor, they'll say, well, gosh, you know, I don't, there's so much liability in me putting all of my client assets in something that's 30 to 50 stocks. I have to do that Morningstar asset allocation and spread the money all over the place so I can, in hopes of diversification. And to me, it's always been like, well, 
that sounds more like diversification than <laughs> diversification, but it's, it's almost like we're doing people a disservice by forcing them to go outside of something that's logical and common sense of just having a basket of good quality businesses, just like what was it that Warren Buffett phrase, you know, keep your basket concentrated and watch over it closely kind of thing. Mm-hmm. To me, that makes more sense, but I don't know if do the advisors in Canada, do they subscribe to that typical own every asset class all the time or, or is what you do a lot more kind of normal in, in Canada? I don't think what we do is normal in Canada. I, th- I think in Canada, most of the wealth is managed by the banks and the advisors, and, and they have different platforms and, and different things that they can do. And not everyone is licensed as a investment counselor, portfolio manager, and really uh, use third-party products. Listen, you, you got to do what's comfortable for you and, and what allows you to sleep at night and what you would buy for yourself. And I have 100% of my investable wealth in the stocks that my clients own. Maybe one or two that I fooled around with. And you know, I'm happy if my clients want to fool around with one or two as well. But at the end of the day, you know, my biggest positions are the same as the clients have Amazon and National Bank and Microsoft. This is what makes me comfortable to research stocks and to understand even 30 stocks. It's an incredibly difficult job. So imagine doing that and then also researching alternative assets and products and third-party managers and who's the best and you know what are the conflicts of interests. It's mind-boggling to me. Uh, no question, Eric, we're under pressure from clients all the time uh, about the new hot thing. A few years ago, it was marijuana. Now it's Bitcoin or alternative assets, private equity, hedge funds, you name it. And I, I just... We can't be everything to everybody. And the type of clients that we work with are, uh, you know, they're not the hundred million their clients. And, and those clients probably have family offices anyways and are, are diversifying their assets. And if they're using us, they're only giving us a small portion. But let's face it, not all of us are have a hundred million dollars. The clients have that $1 million range. I think, and I agree with you, I think a hundred percent of their money is all just needs to be in good quality stocks and fixed income where appropriate. That's all they need. And that's really what we've rallied against. Not to say that we won't change that in the future, but definitely over the last 20 plus years, that's really all we've done. You know, it's funny from the customer, from the client perspective, what do you think appeals to them, makes more common sense to them, and probably keeps them engaged in difficult times? The 15 tickers that they really don't even understand where their money is, is, is going and how it's allocated, or the 30 names, particularly in a separate account that they see, right? They can check, okay, you know, I talk about it all the time in our strategy. Like last year when COVID was going crazy and the world was, you know, CNBC was scaring the crap out of everybody. And I said, just look inside the portfolio. You're clustered in Target. You're going to Costco, maybe even more. You're ordering on Amazon. You're using your Visa card. You're now working from home. And so you get a chance to exercise more regularly. You're going to go buy new Nike shoes and Lululemon pants and all Mm. those kinds of things. And to me, it's like that thematic in the eyes and the minds of a consumer is so much more interesting and sexy and worthy of talking about to your friends from a referral perspective than, oh, I have a portfolio. I don't really know how it's allocated. I don't really even know what I own, but it, I don't know, it seems to be doing okay. But honestly, I don't really even know. (laughs) Well, I I think you hit the nail on the head, but I think what you said, not necessarily the companies, but how you articulate it is what clients are looking for, right? And so a client will call me up and I don't think they necessarily care that much if they own Microsoft or or Amazon uh, or they care that I say they're the best businesses in the world. I think they care that I know that they're the best business of the world and I feel that they're protected in that. And I've done my homework on that. And, and, And that's kind of what you've articulated there. It's that they're looking for the manager to hold their hand in the rough times. And, and that's really the, to me, the biggest selling point of our business, which is active management, is the fact that someone is actually paying attention and adding some value. And there's a real human to speak with in tough times. When I looked on your site, I was looking at kind of the style and the strategy. And I'd love to, you know, expand a little bit more on the five kind of characteristics of a good business. One, 
I think it was the fifth one. Would you consider yourself kind of a growth at a reasonable price? I mean, if you had to put yourself in a little box, would it be just a growth investor, a GARP investor, an equal opportunity investor? I mean, kind of give me an idea about that. Yeah. So I don't really like to put myself in any kind of box because first of all, going back to what you said about Twitter, like it, I found so many wonderful people there. And I think we're all have the same aim of becoming better investors, right? And we're all learning together and we're sharing ideas, which is wonderful. And it reminds me of the days when I used to look at Raging Bull and Stockhouse years ago, but you you didn't really, you know, no one was a real person. Now half the people are real people. Well, everybody's a real person. You just don't know if uh, you don't know where they work and who they are. But uh, I don't like to pigeonhole us as investors because things change. And so you really have to adapt. Um, but I think what we've identified, and obviously it's nothing original, it's just that we're more comfortable owning businesses that have growth opportunities and have the ability to reinvest the excess capital that they generate to get more growth opportunities. Does every single stock in our portfolio have terrific reinvestment opportunities? No, of course not. And I think some of the names that our clients own, for example, they own an apartment REIT in Canada that's in our growth portfolio. I think some of those names in the portfolio allow us to maybe even be, I hate to use this term, but a frisky with some other names right? And provide some defensiveness and some ballast to the portfolio. So I wouldn't say that we have any real definitive style. No question, we have launched a fund called the Baskin Growth Fund. It's a pool for our clients. So we do like growth. We do think those are the best types of investments to own, but not every single stock has the sexiest growth opportunities. But it is really growth at reasonable price probably would be the best way to describe it. We don't own Tesla. We avoided Netflix for years. We we hummed and hawed on Amazon. And we missed so many great opportunities, but we finally got comfortable on the valuation side that we could value these companies. And that's when we start to buy them. When we can come up with the value for them, when we can project the free cash flows, when they stop losing money, sure, it may be too late. But you know what? We're not in the history business. We're in the future business, and uh, it's never too late to buy a great company. Right, and we're the same way. I mean, I, I if you look at the current portfolio, certainly there's a growth bias. Um, if you had to categorize different companies, and I could even poke holes in, you know, h- how certain companies are categorized. You know, you see like a Procter and Gamble in the value basket, and you're like, well, geez, five percent organic growth and thirty times earnings. That doesn't scream value to me. But, you know, it is what it is. But we like to say we're opportunity driven, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I learned early with my value manager was there's probably not a lot of value in a business that can't grow. So if that makes me a growth investor, then perhaps maybe I'm a growth investor. But we spent a lot of time on analyzing style factors because, like you said, certain styles go in and out of favor over time. And so if you're stuck in a style box, that feels good while the style box is working and it feels terrible when it's not working, you know? Yeah. And so if, if you're willing to look at other opportunities and you understand that the market changes over time, to me, that just gives you more ways to win. And at the end of the day, we're trying to win. We're trying to give people a smoother ride along the way, but winning is still important and providing something that's of value. Yeah. Well, so I, I take the approach with our clientele and what we're doing is that I'm managing the entirety of their investable assets. That may or may not be the case. But if you take that approach, then you really got to be careful of what you invest in. And you don't want to make any outsized bet on any one sector or style or approach. But ultimately, going back to what we talked about, thinking like a business owner is the most important thing. It solves so many problems in investing. You know, we're not going to get everything right. But if you really have that mindset, I think as an investor, and definitely for us, it it works. Yeah, we do have those five criteria that we're looking for in a great business. It's a moat, uh, the tailwinds opportunity, great management and culture, a strong history of good and smart capital allocation. And then most importantly, or maybe lastly, is valuation. Obviously, you don't want to overpay too much for the future. We've seen so many rocket ships over the years implode. I was just looking in 1999, the biggest companies, anybody remember Lucent? 
or Nokia. I mean, they're gone. Or uh, Research in Motion here in Canada, Nortel. I, I, Potash was a, the, one of the biggest companies at one point. So uh, the hype train uh, lasts for a long time. And yet you can't tell. I, like Tesla, that, that could be one of the hype trains that either works or doesn't work. And to me, it's still too soon to tell whether a name like that is going to work out. When you're making money and your profits are due to Bitcoin, I don't understand, I don't understand the rationale. So I can't articulate to clients a story like Tesla. It doesn't make sense to me, but I can. You talked about Visa. Everybody has a Visa card. Everybody now is shopping so much more online. All my clients love to travel and they pull out the Visa card. And then when they come home and they see all the, all the uh, exchange fees and all that when they go to Europe, it's just insane in terms of how well that business is versus I'm not sure what we're betting on in Tesla. I think we're, when you're, we're buying Tesla, we're really just betting that someone will pay a higher price for the stock than us. And it's hard to think like a business owner on, on that type of investment. Yeah. So you said most of your assets are in your stocks. You have a little GameStop and some crypto, don't you? <laughs> we do not. And I'm not going to poo-poo anybody having fun with investing. And as a young investor, when I first started out at my first job, I worked for a mutual fund company. I won't name the name because I really didn't do any work at the mutual fund company. <laughs> All I did was trade, Eric. And uh, I had a job where I had to do reconciliations and uh, it's the most dreadful job. And so by 4 p.m. every day, you had to have the uh, so-called trust account reconciled, whatever that means. Uh, and certainly people will turn off this podcast if I have to describe that any more in detail. But I was pretty good at it. So I was able to reconcile by 10 a.m. in the morning. So I had uh, six hours the rest of the day to do what I wanted. And so I traded stocks. This was 1997 to 1999. And I turned uh, some savings that I had, I turned like $10,000 into $100,000 buying the stupidest dot-com stocks you'd ever had. And I was like one of the lucky ones. I, I got married uh, in the summer of 2000 and my wife and I wanted to buy a house and I cashed out in the market. By October 2000, the jig was up, and uh, by March uh, 2001, totally imploded. So I got lucky. I bought AOL. I think I 10 times my money on AOL before it got bought out by Time Warner. But um, I'm not going to say that I know everything about those types of investments that people are having fun on now. It's just, I don't want to take flyers for my clients. I don't want to fool around. They work so hard for their money that it's it's not our job to uh, do the lottery tickets. I know it's worked out great for one of my favorite investors, Bill Miller. He threw lottery tickets at Bitcoin and Amazon when no one was buying them, and he's now a billionaire. So muzzle tov to him, but I just can't do it for my client's money. Right. I had no idea that recent, I'm sure you're talking about the recent Barron's article. Yeah. I had no idea what a gunslinger he is, or maybe he's become. I don't know if he was doing that when when he was managing the Leg Mason Trust with that 15 straight years of beating the market, who knows? Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you look at his Miller Opportunities Fund and they run a hedge fund, they use leverage. Like it's definitely more of a gunslinging type of portfolio. And, you know, kudos to him for buying. I mean, I remember laughing at some of my friends and family members that were buying Ethereum and all those other ones. And, mm -hmm. you know, and they were buying it much lower. I don't think they held on. I think they probably had great gains and probably moved on and missed the fat pitch. But I was like, that's ridiculous. I don't even know what it is. Somebody that even knows what it is can't tell me what it is. Yeah. Well, so it's kind of what Howard Marks was talking about in one of his memos where he said, you got to dare to be great. And so daring to be great is, I think sometimes you have to take risks. My clients are not looking for that for this portion of their money. So I'm not going to do it. But you know, I could certainly direct people if they're looking to do crazy stuff and punch out some lottery tickets, there's opportunities. It's just not something I'm going to spend any time thinking about. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I, I was looking at, uh, I think I told you, I was looking at Whale Wisdom, you know, the 13F site, just because I love to see kind of the holdings, you know, just scrolling through. And again, these are, you know, these are all as of 1231, so they may or may not have changed. But it certainly looked like you had a decent slug of companies that have a tie to the consumer as well. And I'm curious, is that a, is it because of the, the fundamentals of the business and it just happens to be tied to a consumer or is there some, 
you know, kind of dedication to the consumer. And then from there, you identified really good opportunities, or maybe it's both, but just curious. Well, there's 7 billion consumers on this planet. So I, <laughs> I think you want to attack the big addressable markets, right? right. Uh, so I learned pretty quickly, especially as being an investor in Canada with a population of 30, I think we're 37 million. It's, it's growing quickly, actually. But still, um, if you're, we have three telecom companies here. Bell Canada, Rogers Communications, and TELUS. Probably not too many uh, non-Canadians are aware of these companies, but it's a very niche type business to be a telecom provider in a country with 37 million people and have three of them. And I learned pretty quickly that the addressable market, if you're one of three, it's you know 10 or 12 million people. It still can be a great business, but I'd rather invest in companies that have products and services that can reach in the billions. And I had that epiphany a number of years ago, I think reading some books, one of them uh, about platform companies, just really put my mind on the world's big. You got to be getting uh, exposure to that. Uh, and, and the runways of, of growth are long. So no, no question we are interested in the consumer, our largest, our client's largest holding. It, I mean, it, it is separately managed accounts. So it's, you know, some clients have bigger positions than others, but the largest holding is Apple. We started buying it in, I think, 2012 or 2013. I remember taking my son uh, for skiing lessons. I had a stack of research because the skiing lessons are three hours long. I'm bored out of my mind. And I started making notes about Apple. I'm like, why didn't I buy this sooner? And 2012, 2013, it's not, not like the Apple it is today. There's, you know, they had a lot of fewer products. There really was no services. It was really just an iPhone company. And of course, when I got excited about it, my wife goes, you idiot, I told you to buy this when they launched the iPod. Why didn't you listen to me then? I'm like, so I need to listen more to my wife because she's told me so many, if I watch what she's interested in, she was interested in Lululemon long before every um, mom was buying it. And now, of course, I'm wearing a Lululemon shirt, so all the dads are interested in it. You know, she was interested in Spotify long before I said, I'm not going to convert my 700 CDs. Uh, they don't have anything I like. So I, I need to be a little smarter on this. But that's that's really the focus on the consumer is there's 7 billion of us. And I think people like to spend money. Uh, some people I, don't. I, My I, parents don't. But most of us do. And so that gets me excited about investing in consumer businesses. You know, I think we use the phrase all the time, you know, it's it's consumerism is in our DNA. And it's gone global for sure. You know, I do this exercise with my daughter. She's 11 and I get great ideas from her too. Not only do I do the same as you with my wife, let's face it, 85% of the household wallet is, is driven by the female. So, so they have wonderful knowledge that some of us who hate to shop don't have. Yeah. And my daughter's the same way. I said, Sky, what are your, if you had to go out, if we were going to take you on a shopping spree, where would we go? First, it's Target. And then she said, second, it's Target. <laughs> and I was, I was like, note to self, kids love Target. Yeah. Uh, and, but then she'll go on and, you know, I'm amazed. I know I wasn't that way when I was her age. Her generation is so brand aware now that she literally be like, I love Starbucks, dad. I love to go to Whole Foods. I love shopping on Amazon. I love using your and mommy's credit card. You know, I love Lululemon. What a portfolio uh, no. already. And I'm like, I'm like, she once told me, she said, Dad, if Target's not your, your top holding, I'm going to be really upset with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not no, our it's top holding, but it's been a great holding. And they really, you know, they, they kind of lost their way for a long time. And then finally, probably through survival, got dragged kicking and screaming into updating and going omni-channel and things. And, and it has been a wonderful ride ever since. So they were big laggards until... You know, you know, the story of Target and how it, they really screwed up their launch in Canada, right? All those stores that, for whatever reason, Target came into Canada, but either used a third party or some really stupid real estate investors and kind of took over the worst sites in Canada to launch their stores. And it was a complete write-off. And still, I think they came in, they didn't even last a few months. And still some of those stores are empty. And that was 2014, 2015. 
still those big boxes are completely empty. I went to one of them late recently to get my vaccine. That was that was where I got my shot was an empty Target store. But as a Canadian, we used to hear so much great things about Target. Oh, I love Target. And all the snowbirds that would go down to Florida would rave about Target. It's so awesome. You can get everything there. I went to it and I'm like, eh, you know, I, I, I don't see the appeal. But uh, Costco for me is, is the one like that. To me, I feel like we could own that stock and I own it personally. We could own it forever. I feel there's just so much runway of opportunity and a lot of companies, you hope they get the international right, but very few do. But it looks like Costco has the product that international buyers, uh, it works everywhere, right? Target came to Canada, disaster. Uh, Some Canadian companies like Tim Horton go to the U.S., disaster. But Costco, it seems to work everywhere. Starbucks pretty much seems to work everywhere. So I think once you catch on to one of those names that really is ubiquitous, never sell them. Never sell. No. Never sell. And it's funny though. I don't know about you. I actually don't enjoy the shopping experience at Costco, but I completely understand how powerful the model is. You know, it's just, you know, the Lululemon shopping experience, the aesthetics, mm-hmm. the store, you know, it's, it's totally different than, than a Costco, but I understand how important it is. And they have, I mean, they're just beginning outside the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, China is probably an enormous opportunity. It's probably inning two there. Yeah. But we, we've seen so many companies, uh, large international U.S. companies fail. I, I think Costco works because, first of all, the treasure hunt experience. You never know what you're going to find and you know what's been curated. And I think the second thing is people think they're getting such a great deal, even though uh, how can Costco be making any money off of this? I got 8,000 rolls of toilet paper. Like they got to be losing money. Ha ha ha. I'll show them. I, I think that really resonates with, with some people and it either works or it doesn't. Like my wife will not become a Costco member. She hates lineups and being overwhelmed by so many big things. She's like, where am I going to store 8,000 rolls of toilet paper? I don't need three cases of almonds. We're never going to eat that. So I think it works for some people and it doesn't. But, you know, to us, it's it, it fits all the criteria that we're looking for. Strong moat, great tailwinds, great culture. I think we were able to buy it at quite a reasonable price. But, you know, great businesses rarely go on sale. And when they go on sale, you don't want to buy them anyways, right. because chances are it's some kind of disaster going on in the world, or there's a correction, or there's a bear market, or the thesis is broken. If Costco's trading at 15 times earnings, chances are uh, we're in a scenario where Costco's thesis is, is dead. Yeah. you know, Looking at your portfolio a little bit deeper, do you have any kind of exposure or views on, you know, I love the industry these days, right? Everything is a buzzword. Right. It's it's the stay at home basket or it's the recovery basket or it's the get the heck out of your office and your house basket. You know, I, I did notice at least, you know, do, do you have any kind of the get back to the way things used to be kind of stocks? And if so, is that more of a tactical thing or you just like the business and maybe you've owned it for a long time and you've kind of ridden through that whole thing? Because that's from our perspective, just so listeners know, we tend to have this core group of what I call mega brands, which are more the the names that I just never sell as we trade around those. If we, like we're going to get some opportunities maybe with Microsoft tomorrow. We got a, an opportunity. With we should, we should stop the podcast now so we can buy some after hours at this there price. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then there's the tactical component. Sometimes something mm-hmm. might not look as good from a high quality and a moat perspective, but you know, year over year, it couldn't be any more timely because things are so dreadful last year that even you know, going from really dreadful to slightly less dreadful, there's some decent returns potential in, in names like that. But I may not be holding those from a long-term perspective. So, I mean, do you have any of that in, in your portfolio or is it more the high quality kind of buy and hold type of stuff? Yeah, we, we, we try not to trade around positions. We really want, like I said, we want to think long-term, want to think like business owners. I think the way we research companies, it takes us so long to really delve into a company that I'm going to miss opportunities in different stocks that I'm not aware of. And so I don't think we're very tactical in that way. So it's really more about buying tennis ball type investments, right? And the tennis ball approach is 
when you drop a tennis ball, it bounces pretty much right back. And we got lucky in COVID. Most of our companies that our clients owned bounced right back. I didn't have any experience investing in a pandemic. Probably uh, you didn't either. And so we made a few dumb decisions or poor decisions that obviously they look like poor decisions in hindsight. Um, but I think some of them worked to our advantage. We went into uh, 2020 owning Delta, Hyatt, and Disney. I remember the good old days when the worries about Delta were uh, how much are they going to make on upcharging people for baggage and getting out of the airplane first and premium economy. Uh, Hyatt, the thesis was pretty clear. They were they're really great operators, owner-operated business, family still involved, owns a lot of shares and potential for because of a smaller operator to maybe get taken out one day. And Disney, well, it just like has had at what we thought was the world's greatest business, which was a theme park. And uh, we were trying to wrap our heads around the streaming part of the business at that time. We sold all three in the depths of the pandemic. Two of them we sold early and were right on the money, Delta and Hyatt. We sold them. Luckily for those that kept them, they're kind of back to where they were pre-pandemic. Uh, Disney, we completely blew. Uh, that was just, our thesis was, oh my God, no theme parks, no cruises, no sports on TV, no movies. This is a disaster. At that time, we remember they were converting to streaming. So their balance sheet was going to be a disaster. Well, they it, it worked out. <laughs> so that one got completely wrong. Aside from that, we got pretty lucky because I think, and this is part of the thesis of sticking to good quality businesses. They can stand the test of time. Sure, their stocks aren't going to go up every single year, and not every quarter is going to be fantastic. It looks like the market doesn't like Microsoft's quarter today, even though it looks like it beat by 17 cents, maybe the guidance, who knows. But ultimately, when you stick to these great branded businesses, high quality businesses, that's where you get the protection. So I don't think I'm any good at being tactical. And I'll leave that to guys like you who can trade around. I don't want to trade. I don't want to wake up every day and say, oh, you know, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should do that. I think one of the underrated things of being a high quality investor is sitting on your butt and doing nothing. But, you know, as they say, there's a lot to be said for sitting on your butt and doing nothing. You know, there's two investing books that really resonated with me over my career. The first one was Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street, you know, kind of the know what you own. And the other is the reminiscence of a stock operator. I mean, that book of Jesse Livermore and, you know, the wild ride that is a trader from being wealthy to broke to wealthy to broke. And there was tons of great lines in that book. But one is, you know, the real money's made in sitting, you know, not churning, if you will. Isn't the sad thing about that book, though, that he lost all his money in the Great Depression and then killed himself? Yeah, so, himself. I'm like, what? Kill himself. So it's you know, it's uh, I don't I don't know what lessons one can take it, but at the time, <laughs> it, it, you know, those are great lessons, and, and certainly Charlie Munger has espoused on that as well, right? Warren Buffett's uh, partner in crime, saying uh, you know, sit on your butt and do nothing is is a highly underrated type. So. I'm really trying hard to educate uh, myself, my employees, my business partners, my clients, that the best approach when you have a good business is leave it alone. We do trim because we feel like we're managing, even though we may not be 100% of a client's assets, we don't want to have oversized positions. And we've trimmed Apple like four or five times for clients. Every time's been wrong, Eric. <laughs> Every time. But what happens if the alternative universe and things didn't go right? And of course, it's hard to track what we did with the money and did we make other smart decisions. Right. But I think trimming is a prudent thing to do. So I am at the moment, I'm hashtag never sell, but I am sometimes hashtag sometimes trim. And that's really... Just out of curiosity, what is a an oversized position from your perspective? You know, some people be like, "Oh, anything more than four percent or ten percent or whatever yeah. the number is." So, well, so we're all we're all kind of making it up in what our comfort level is. There's no rules of thumb, and you know, a good friend of mine who does similar investing in in Canada, they own fifteen or sixteen stocks per portfolio. So their starting position is kind of like where. Mine is my nervous position. So we tend to trim around 7% when a, when a name gets a 7%. We trim it back to the five, five and a half range. We have to be cognizant, of course, of taxes. 
And we've been really lucky, except for one or two names in a 30 stock portfolio. Every stock we have is sitting in capital gains. That's because we got rid of the losers, but right. uh, <laughs> but we kept on okay the to harvest too. Nothing yeah. wrong with harvesting, right? So I'm gonna have. I think I'm gonna have some clients come after us with pitchforks in, in the future because the gains are pretty good on anything we sell. But you know, at the end of the day, it's 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 to each their own. You really have to be careful about trimming, but most importantly, is don't sell a good idea. I've made that mistake so many times. Look at my Disney mistake. I, you know, we sold it at $95. It's 180 bucks today. Right. Oy vey. You know, what a disaster that that's. And then, and then psychologically, I mean, listen, we do it for a living and it's just as hard for us as it is for, you know, a novice retail investor to chase something that they missed, to admit that I did it wrong and to get back on the train if we really believe. So, you know, I sold it at 95 and my realization was 125. I made a bad decision, mm-hmm. but I can't buy it at 125. I and mean, then you're like, for me, it's it's hard. I don't like chasing. Maybe it's my PTSD from 2000, chasing momentum names and then getting just annihilated early in my career as a young trader and investor. So I tend to like good quality when the market acts irrationally because I just feel better. I like buying sales. But sometimes you have to make that decision. Like I should be in this name. It's a little bit higher than where I sold it. That's okay, because I think it might be a lot higher at some point. That's exactly how I want to think about investing. And if you think about Disney, when it did get back to 125, I don't think the outlook was better. And certainly in some countries, the outlook for COVID is worse than it was in the summer of 2000. So it's really fascinating how markets work. I guess we all realize in 2020, and something everybody should know is, one year of lost revenue or hurt revenue doesn't really impact the long-term value of a business as long as you think that business is going to be around for the long term. One year is meaningless. Sure, it's it's impactful while it's happening, but had I really sat down and thought about it, the only reason to have sold Disney was if I thought it was going bankrupt. That would have been the only reason. You know, we thought I have to protect my client's capital. So I thought at the time that was the right move. You know, because if it goes to 50, that's a disaster. But had I, we really talked about it and really thought more and long hard about it, we probably wouldn't have sold it. The question is, do I buy it back today or do I, am I comfortable with what I own already in my portfolio? There's so many great businesses out there. It's, do I think Disney's great value at 185? So it's so hard to figure out. But what I'm fascinated by, Eric, I'd like to hear your thoughts is, I think there's more great businesses out there than I have of capital. Like I hear people say there's not enough to buy. What do you, what do you think? I don't struggle from that either. I, I, a lot of times I'll say, gosh, you know, I wish I had a little extra money in the fund because I'd love to buy that company. It's now on sale or, you know, maybe we've done some ancillary research and that led us into this company. And I mean, we're a little different. I, I, my investable universe is 200 companies okay. and that 200 gets updated every December as we do our consumer trends and the brand analysis. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm well aware of the 200, but sometimes, you know, you take your, your eye off the ball about some of the names that you don't own and then you start to get engaged and you're like, holy smokes, like I want to own that one too. I mean, we own, I think probably 36 stocks right now. And I said the other day, I could probably easily add another five to eight without even thinking about it. It's just, how do you part? It's like trying to decide if you have four kids, how do you decide which one's the best kid? You know, you love them all. So it's, it's for me, it was, what company do I trim in order to get engaged in this business? And then you have to do the this versus that analysis, mm-hmm. so, you know, but yeah, no, I agree that I think there's this whole market this year has been very interesting. To me, it's been a big rolling correction. It's going sector by sector, industry by industry. And so there hasn't been a ton of downfall at the index level, but there absolutely has been a lot of interesting buying opportunities for, mm-hmm. for great businesses that just short-term went down. I mean, Chipotle went down 6% in three days after earnings. Mm-hmm. Remember when Costco got point. down to 310 after its earnings and Domino's Pizza got, I think, got down to 330, now back to 400. So there's always opportunities. I think as investors, we all get too cute. We're all waiting. Um, 
I always hear from when we talk about stocks, uh, if it falls 20%, we'll look at it. It seems to be the 20% numbers and what everybody uses. Like MSCI is a business that I never bought. The index business, just a phenomenal business. Some of the biggest gross margins you've ever seen in your life. I think it has uh, incremental uh, margins of 100%. Just a terrific business. And as an advisor here, uh, if we want to publish uh, any returns for clients or prospective clients, I got to pay these indices and it's free money for them and it's not cheap. But every time I look at it, I think, ah, I'll just wait for a 20% correction. And then either I never do it or I look at it and when it's 20% off and I still say it's too expensive. Right. So there's a reason why good businesses trade at such high multiples. But I just want to get back to the one thing that you said about trading this for that. I think once you own a good business, it's really hard to, I think it doesn't get you anywhere if you trade one good business for another. You've got to be really, if you're going to sell Microsoft to buy Amazon, if you don't already own the two, you really got to be right on the sale and on the buy. And then God forbid, you got capital gains on top of that. So it's what Joe Biden wants to do with the capital gains. And Canada, I think at some point is going to be raising capital gains taxes too. And all our clients, whether they like it or not, are in the higher tax brackets. So it's 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 a big challenge to get back to break even once you sell something. So I've learned that uh, be very careful trading one great business for another. Yeah, I agree. I mean, listen, I have two hats. So I, I do occasionally like you know, last year was one of those years where if you had the interest, the ability, and the time to trade. There were just such wonderful trading opportunities, mm-hmm. short term. I mean, when the VIX is, you know, 20 or 30 on a multi-month period, you certainly have an opportunity, but that's more of a, you know, hey, the market is giving me this opportunity. It's a tool that's in my risk management toolbox, and it comes out when there's high probability odds of success. And when mm-hmm. that doesn't happen anymore, the tool goes back into the toolbox, and so, you know, we had great returns. I'm sure you did looking at your portfolio. I'm sure you had great returns for the year of 2020, even though, you know, in March or April, if you would have said, hey, if your return for the year is going to be X, do you think that's possible? And you would say it is not even remotely possible. No, no. I remember emailing clients, I think it was April or May and, and telling them, you know, we've recovered and you're down like 5% for the year. And they're like, oh, I thought I lost, you know, 30 or 40%. And then of course, you know, many clients ended up up 15% or whatever, you know, depending on their mix and never would I have imagined that, but that's, that's investing for you. That's the beauty. So when you look at my 13F, given that you follow a lot of mega brands, is there anything controversial that you see that you're saying, why, why are these guys owning it? I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. No, I didn't see that. I I was intrigued, though. Here's a name that, like your Disney example, Ferrari. Mm. We owned Ferrari for a long time. And I think it was probably more of a, you know, the thing looks like dead money for a while for obvious reasons. They don't struggle from a demand issue. They struggle from a supply and, you know, all of those things. And so we, we, we sold it and moved on to another name. And I... And then I looked at it the other day and it was right back to all-time highs. And I'm like, this yes. one of the sexiest brands that's ever been created. Maybe it's just my mail. I love to drive fast and, you know, hear the vroom. But what an unbelievable business that is. I was loving that you have, I mean, I think you got a pretty cool but eclectic portfolio. I mean, you got, you know, Bam in there, which I don't tell you a quick Ferrari story. I would love it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, my analyst, Ernest, researched Ferrari after the spinoff. And at the time, we owned General Motors. And he emailed me, I want to take a look at Ferrari. They have some interesting economics. And I wrote back to him, clearly, I remember this. I don't need another car company in the portfolio. I got one that's so bad already. General Motors is not doing anything. And of course, uh, I completely uh, ignored him and told him to go away with that idea. And of course, I watched the stock go from 45 to 100 bucks. And we finally did the research and bought it around there. But, you know, we cost our clients the first easy double by me being so flippant and ignorant and stubborn. And so don't be stubborn as an investor. I keep telling myself, 
you got to be open to new ideas. But yeah. uh, that's the Ferrari story. It's and they they got software margins. I mean, it, you know, it's certainly not a cheap stock, but you wouldn't expect it to be. It's a three hundred thousand dollar car. <laughs> I don't even have a CEO right now, and the stock is still at all time highs. The, the power CEO, of the brand, right? Yeah. The CEO stepped down for some unknown reasons. I think they missed the market wasn't really happy with their strategy about electric car. I mean, does anybody want to buy a Ferrari as an electric car? I, I don't think so. The, we're running up against time. Yeah. I want to make sure that, that everybody, you know, it seems like in today's world, we have a certain window of opportunity to uh, to capture people and then they kind of move on to other things. But I, I did notice, I don't know if that was in here. But do you own Live Nation? We do. You do? Okay. Yeah. yeah. We, I mean, we just, that that's another one. We had it. We sold it for like similar to you with the airlines. We re-entered it. And I don't know about you, of, of all the things that I'm pent up to do, going to a concert is right at the number one spot. A hundred percent. It's the greatest experience you can go to. And uh, I like only old timer music. So, uh, you know, I, the bands that I want to see, they have a very short window <laughs> left of touring. And uh, I sure hope uh, concerts resume very shortly. But to us, Live Nation, uh, just an incredible business, one that's very difficult to understand. If you look at the numbers, it's kind of like spaghetti on a plate. But, you know, it's one where you have to really think big picture. And, you know, they've demonstrated that they've been able to raise ticket prices, get more sponsorship, get more ancillary revenue, people buying T-shirts and paying for parking and all these things work together. And post-COVID, it's going to be such a great business. They've cut costs like crazy. Probably there's lack of competitors now going forward. And I think, as you said, the pent-up demand is going to be there. And one could argue that even though the stock is recovered and it's higher than it was pre-COVID, which to some people makes no sense, you could argue the stock is still very cheap given that they've cut so much costs and are going to go uh, into the 2022 concert season so lean and so mean. Yeah, I think there is a theme there too. I, I see that in the hotel stocks too. You know, If you were forced to cut costs dramatically for survival, you're seeing the benefit of those positive financial metrics, better margins, et cetera. The Marriott's and the Hilton's, they now can operate profitably at much lower occupancy rates. So yeah. yes, they, I mean, we, we just went on a stay into to Palm Springs and I spent an hour and a half with the GM there, super good guy. And, you know, he kind of confirmed like we haven't been able to hire back the people that we need to hire given how fast demand has ripped back. Yeah. He's understanding that the service, the experience that everybody has might be a little lacking short-term because they don't have that staff. But from a financial metrics profitability perspective, there's some surprises coming over the next couple of quarters because demand has come right back and their cost structure is down pretty handily year over year. So I think there's a, a host of these businesses that were forced to cut costs. They're going to get used to operating with much less. The profitability is probably going to be higher than it's ever been until they ramp up maybe back to where they used to be. So, you know, going back to your statement, you know, there's lots of names to take a look at now, even though the market's at all-time highs. People say, we're close to the top. You know, how many times have you heard this is the top? <laughs> I wish I had the ability to see the future the way everybody else does. Yeah, I'll just leave you with this. In good times with great businesses, they should be nearer at all-time highs always. And if they're not, then they're no longer a great business. And so those waiting to get into a cheap valuation on a great business, good luck to you. And with so many algorithms and you know so many smart investors out there any bargains get taken out right away so i would say that they're a great business for a reason and it makes sense to me why they should always trade at high valuations and near all-time highs and uh, if you can get them out on pullbacks and you have new capital and you're comfortable with long-term growth and you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't buy them well tomorrow in the next couple of days we might have some of those great opportunities Harry, this has been super fun. Just give everybody, you know, whether it's your website address or your Twitter handle, if they, you know, want to follow you, you tweet out some really good stuff. 
we occasionally have some fun tweeting out some of the ridiculous things that we see on Twitter too. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, it's just brainless and it feels good, but how can people kind of follow you further? Absolutely. So people can find us at uh, baskinwealth.com, B-A-S-K-I-N. And they can find me on Twitter at Barry Schwartz, B-W. And uh, that stands for Baskin Wealth. So Barry Schwartz, B-W on Twitter. And uh, look forward to uh, our continued discussion on Twitter and uh, trying to find the best brands and quality companies to continue to invest in. And if your daughter comes up with any great ideas, shoot me an email. Like, come on, man. Absolutely. I'm number one on the list after you. Okay. <laughs> awesome, Barry. Really good to talk to you. All the best. Thanks so much. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.